0: So back in 2011, some of y'all might remember this, there was a fringe group of people that began promoting a specific date for the return of Christ. According to them, it was going to be Saturday, May 21st, 2011. I remember driving around Flowood and seeing it up on billboards. Make ready for the return of Jesus. They were running ads on Facebook. Jesus is coming back. May the 21st. Now, it just so happened that I was the youth pastor at my former church then, and they had asked me to preach the sermon on Sunday, May 22nd, the next day. And so I had a decision to make. Do I even bother preparing a sermon if Jesus is coming back the day before? Thankfully, I did. Uh... Because, of course, Jesus did not come back May 21st, 2011. And I'm not saying this to sound callous, but I didn't even give it a second thought because Jesus Himself said that He will return on a day and at an hour that we do not expect, that it is not for us to know the time of His appearing. And so I I just say this as a general rule. Y'all, we Christians, we should always be skeptical anytime somebody claims to have a set date for the rapture. We should also be skeptical if somebody claims to have done the math and, you know, that the alphanumeric code of this certain politician's name equals 666, things like that. Y'all, that's, it's, that's bogus stuff. But I shouldn't let my skepticism turn into cynicism about the actual return of Christ, okay? And we're going to see that today in 1 John, that John calls the time we're living in, he calls it the last hour, meaning we ought to be eagerly anticipating and hoping and praying for the return of Jesus. And part of that readiness means that we must be diligent as his followers to discern truth from error and good from evil. And that's what 1 John 2 tells us this morning. We're going to begin in verse 18. I want us to see how John calls us to think and live right here in this present moment as we prepare always for the return of our Savior. So look at 1 John 2, verse 18. He says, children, speaking to us, the church, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now how's that for a Bible verse right there? We can go a lot of different directions with a verse like this. It requires a lot of care. And so I just let's just break down into some smaller pieces and see, I hope, a, a clearer sense of what John is saying. He begins by telling us here, verse 18, it is the last hour. And there's no way around this. It certainly appears that John is telling us that the end is nigh. The end is near. Jesus is about to return. And people historically have looked at a verse like this with with concern or even cynicism when we realize, especially now, golly, it's been been almost 2,000 years since these words were first written. What does John mean when he says we're in the last hour? Is this a situation where John the Apostle, maybe just like Paul or even Jesus, who spoke of the end, the generation, the last times, Is it possible that they are just mistaken? Sincere, perhaps, but wrong. And I'll say to that, of course, no. John, y'all, John is not making a date and time prediction here. He's speaking of a period of time. Elsewhere in the Scripture, this is called the last times or the last days in which we are now presently living. And so if we ask, what does it mean when John says, we are in the last hour, Uh, John Calvin, now, of course, this was about 500 years ago, Calvin explained it very simply, I think. He said, the last hour means no more remains but for Christ to appear for the redemption of the world. No more remains but for Christ to return. In other words, y'all think about this. Jesus has already died for our sins. He's already been raised from the dead. He has ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father and He has sent forth the Holy Spirit to indwell His church. And right now he is building his church just as he promised to do. What is there left to do? All that remains is for him to return. And in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world according to righteousness. The day is fixed in the mind of God. We don't know what it is, but all that remains is for the day to come and for Christ to appear. And so I want to encourage us this morning not to think of the last hour as something very strange and mystical. The only question might be, okay, well, when's it going to come? Like how long is the last, it's been a lot of hours. When's the the actual last hour going to come? And the Apostle Peter speaks to this. In 2 Peter 3, it's really interesting here because Peter acknowledges something even back in his day. In the very early years of the church, not long, only a handful of decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter recognizes that there will be mockers who come around and say, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is coming back, where is he? Where has he been? What's he doing? When's he going to keep his promise? I thought he was supposed to return any day now. I thought we were in the last hour. And Peter responds to that mocking by encouraging us, the church. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says, do not... Let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now what does Peter say is God's purpose Here, if God should forestall the return of Jesus a 1,000 years, 2,000 years, however long He should choose. Why? It's out of the abundance of God's mercy and kindness and patience. He's not done bringing people out of the darkness and into the light of His salvation. That is good news, not bad news. God is patient toward you so that people might not perish but come to repentance, that we might have life more and more until the time is fulfilled. That's what Peter says about the distance now between the resurrection and the ascension and now the return. All right, we shouldn't worry about it. With God, a thousand years is his one day. Now, we come back now to John's letter because he says we're in the last hour. How does John say we know we're in the last hour? He actually gives a distinguishing element, a sign. And unlike what Peter says, a good thing, a redemptive thing, John gives us a bad sign something that is wrong with the world as it now stands. We are in a time, an hour, of opposition and deception, he says. Look at verse 18 one more time. He says, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word Antichrist. There's a good chance, though, that you're, you're picturing someone or something from a movie or, or some political figure, maybe that people have labeled as the Antichrist. And y'all, I'll say very briefly that the people, the same people perhaps, who insist on an exact date of Jesus' return will also be the same people who start naming names when it comes to who they think the Antichrist is somebody who's alive right now. And typically, it's whoever the most newly elected president is, if we're honest, right? I mean, just, let's just be honest. Whoever the newest president is, typically, there is a handful of people who say, there's the Antichrist right there. He's rising to power right before our eyes. Well, y'all, there is a person that John has in mind. He, uses, he says, Antichrist is coming. That's a, that's a singular noun. It's probable, I think, at least that this is the same person that the Apostle Paul refers to as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you want to make a little note and read that chapter, 2 Thessalonians 2. Here's the deal, y'all. Call me, and we'll have a cup of coffee, and we'll talk about it, all right? Uh, Or better yet, call Aaron or call Evan. (laughs) Um, I tend to think they've got all this figured out, maybe better than I do. Here's the truth, though, and I'm not dodging this. John's purpose in this letter right here is not to speak of the singular person. He makes reference to Antichrist. But his focus is where? Antichrists, plural. And it's clear from the context here that these people John speaks of, these Antichrists, are otherwise normal people. They don't have yellow eyes and forked tongues. They don't slither around on the ground. In fact, John says at one time, these people were present among the church. Look at verse 19. He says, They, the Antichrists, went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. It's unclear how many people John has in mind as he writes this. Those who went out from us But clearly some kind of schism has taken place in the church and John is identifying these people, those who have rejected fellowship because they've rejected the gospel, he calls them, plural, antichrists. Which means, by definition, they are opposed to Jesus. And their opposition to Jesus was revealed in their rejection and opposition of Jesus' people, the true church. They went out from us because they were really really never of us. Uh, These people were never walking in the light to begin with. They were part of the church externally. Uh, They passed the eye test, perhaps, but they were not really of us. They never really knew Christ. Now, why is John telling us this? Why is he writing these words to the church? Do we talk this up to just sour grapes? That some people left the church and John got his feelings hurt and so he just decides to throw some shade at them on their way out the door. Is that what's happening here? Pastors can do that. No, the purpose of this paragraph is one of warning. He's warning the church. For the church in John's day and it's true of the church in our day as well. Y'all, the word antichrist certainly, obviously means opposed to Christ or against Christ. That's what the word anti means. It means against. But y'all also throughout the scripture, when the word anti comes up, oftentimes it means instead of or in place of. And so what John calls the spirit of antichrist, it's not just people opposing Jesus. It's a false religion trying to stand in the place of Jesus. It's a false alternative to true Christianity that's being taught and and, uh, that, that people are trying to infiltrate the church. So and specifically, we see some of the false doctrines that these antichrists are spreading. If you look down in verse 22, John makes reference to this here. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Uh, a, a note here, too, when we when we talk about or you hear about Antichrist, right? It's always fixated typically on one person. But you notice John says, this is the Antichrist, and he says, the one, and that's anyone who denies the Father and the Son. That's why there are many, not just one. That's why there's a spirit of this that pervades the world, not just one person to keep an eye out for. Well, we've seen throughout this letter, if you've been with us or if you're familiar with chapters 1 and 2, John is always careful to make a contrast between what's true Christianity, which he calls walking in the light, and then the alternative, any alternative, which is walking in the darkness. And so we've seen throughout the letter of 1 John, those who reject Christian love and morality Walk in the darkness. Those who are in love with this present world and its lusts. We saw last week. They walk in the darkness. Those who deny their own sinfulness and see no need for grace and a Savior. John says they are walking blindly in the dark. And all of that stems from the issue that John raises right here. We just saw it in verse 22. Those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. Y'all, These people that John speaks of are not atheists. There really would have been no such thing back then. These are people who are very religious in their own right. But what they teach is this, that you can have fellowship with God on your own terms. You can come to God based on your own feelings, on your own what they called gnosis, your own spiritual knowledge. Without any need for a divine Savior or a cross or the forgiveness of sins, you need no resurrection. You you need no incarnation. You don't need God to become a man. That couldn't happen. That wouldn't happen. And so what they were teaching instead was you can have fellowship with God in a sense any way you want. You don't need Jesus. And that's what they were teaching instead of, in place of, the Gospel. In place of Christ. Anti-Christ. Now, y'all, I want to take us one layer deeper for a moment, okay? Okay? that when we talk about the spirit of Antichrist, as John does, this is not merely a human invention. Human beings are not that clever. The, the, the basis, the root of Antichrist finds its origin in Satan. And that shouldn't be hard to understand, right? That there is a, a, a spiritual darkness that, that runs beneath all human expressions of sin and darkness. Satan is behind this. And y'all, I want to ask you this. Well, I mean, what, If we're in the last hour, as John says, what would be Satan's best tool as he tries to spread and, and propagate darkness throughout the world? What, what's, what's, what tool does he have left? Think about this. Satan cannot undo the cross of Christ and the atonement for sin. It's happened. It's finished. Satan cannot undo the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. It's empty. And Jesus is alive. He also can't stop the return of Christ when He comes on the day fixed by the Father. So the only recourse the devil would have at this point in the last hour is deception. He can't change the truth of the Gospel, so his best hope now is to obscure it, to confuse it, to deny it in hopes of keeping people in the dark. And so y'all, I say this as my own opinion but I don't think Satan is is very bothered by any kind of religion as long as Jesus is kept out of the center of it. I don't think religion bothers Satan at all as long as Jesus is not at the core of it. And for our sake, we could could only talk about just our own versions of Christianity, not even other religions, but just our own brand here. Y'all think about this. What, What if I claim to be a Christian And yet my real hope, my real allegiance is to some social or political cause. That's what really drives me. Regardless of what I say, what label I wear. What if I claim to be a Christian, but my real identity is in my own moral behavior? And so I'm very proud and judgmental and legalistic, all the while saying I love Jesus. What if I claim to be a Christian, but it's entirely cultural? It's just the way I was raised. I grew up in the South, and so I'm a Christian. Y'all, those religious identities don't threaten the devil at all. In fact, I think they play right into his desire to deceive us by assuming that we can have Jesus on the side and not in the center. We can have Jesus by name, but not as Savior and Lord. Y'all remember what the spirit of Antichrist is. It opposes Jesus... Often, by replacing Jesus. By putting anything else in His place. That's what the false teachers were doing in John's day. Y'all, they weren't denying that Jesus existed. They weren't even denying that He was good. They said, sure, He's great. Jesus was great. What they were saying is, no, you can have God, you can have Christianity without the cross and the resurrection. You can have God the Father without a need for God the Son. God didn't have to come down in human form to save us. You can come to terms with God all by yourself. You don't need a vicarious salvation. But y'all, this is not an alternate and acceptable version of Christianity. There are a great many people who still believe that. I can have a generic relationship with God of my own doing, of my own making. I don't need Jesus. I don't need His commands. I don't need to obey Him. I don't need to repent of my sins. I can just be religious. But y'all, any other form of religion that puts Jesus on the side or excludes Him altogether is anti-Christ. And John wants us to recognize this Spirit is all around us. This is one of the distinguishing marks of living in the last hour. But... And this is a wonderful but in verse 20. But you, he says, have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know, or you know all things. That's good news. Verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. There's good news for the church in the midst of this opposition and darkness. Two things in particular, John says, that will secure us and keep us firm in our faith in the last days. First, he says, is the Holy Spirit. You see in verse 20, John says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, or you know all things. John is almost certainly right here talking about the Holy Spirit of God who comes to indwell everyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ. We have been anointed in this way. Meaning, God's gracious power has come upon His church in the giving of His Spirit. Jesus promised in the Gospel of John that the Spirit whom He would send will lead us into all the truth. Because the Spirit will take what is true of Jesus and will reveal it, will disclose it to us. And so why is the spirit so important here in John's thinking? It, y'all and this, of course, this makes sense. This is still true today. The false teachers were claiming to have their own spiritual knowledge, their own special insight into the things of God. They weren't just grifters coming and trying to, you know, sell false copies of the Bible that they had, you know, marked and, and changed. No. They claimed to be very spiritual in their own right. They've got this special, extra, unseen, untapped knowledge of God that everybody else apparently lacks and they can give the insight into what we need. Y'all, John says, no. Flatly, no. If you, church, Christian, if you possess the Spirit of God by faith, you have no need for extra special insight into the things of God or the truth of the Scripture. You know all things. John says, by virtue of the very presence of God indwelling you. Y'all, you should be very concerned if I were to come up here on a Sunday and say, I've got something new, y'all. Listen in. No, there's nothing new. There's nothing new. The truth is the truth and the Spirit of God testifies to it. And by faith, we know. But there's a second necessary thing. Having the Holy Spirit does not mean that we just intuitively know the truth. That's very dangerous, in fact. That's the problem. That's called Gnosticism, this idea that all of us have a separate potential truth operating within us at all times, and we'll just live accordingly. We can see how that would break down very quickly. There's a second necessary thing that the Holy Spirit works through, and we see it in verse 24 again. John says, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Y'all, when the Holy Spirit leads us into all the truth, that truth is not something mystical and far away, detached from us, that we have to tap into through some special religious rite or ritual. The truth is the very Word of God the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You know it, John says. I don't write because you don't know it. I write to affirm that you do know it. And it abides in you, and you abide in it. Y'all, this truth right here that we can hold in our hands, it's a miracle. This truth is the very bedrock of what we believe and who we are in Christ. And so the truth, affirmed and revealed through the Spirit, these things distinguish us, John says, as those who belong to Christ, but they also fortify us against any scheme of the enemy, any spirit that is against Christ or tries to replace him with some other teaching. And so, y'all, as, as we close here, I want to, I, I hope, find some encouragement in, in this scripture. I mentioned this earlier, there's a lot, especially verse 18, there's a lot of different directions, a lot of kooky directions we could take a verse like 18. All right? And I, I want to just encourage us. Not to uh, not to err in uh, in conspiracies or outlandish thinking about this. I think what John is telling us is actually pretty straight line. That in the same way that we shouldn't go chasing after every end time prediction, we also shouldn't hear the word antichrist and go run and hide in the corner. And maybe that's our tendency with such a word. We don't like that word. I don't like preaching on antichrist. It's scary. It's confusing. What what are we looking for here? But if we understand what John is saying, he's not presenting this idea as something to fear to run away from. When John says we're in the last hour, he's not trying to scare us. He's trying to awaken us. To enliven us as God's people. Y'all, the same Jesus who died for our sins and rose again from the grave will come again. And in the meantime... In this last hour, we're not left to ourselves. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says in this last time, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is with us, protecting us, preserving us even as the enemy opposes us. So y'all, of course, of course, the enemy is working overtime right now. Because his time is running out. He knows it's the last hour as well. But y'all, if we are the church, if we've trusted Christ, that means that we are one. We are filled with the Spirit of God. We are abiding in the truth of the Gospel. And therefore, we all wait anxiously for the brightest possible future. Our future is secure and bright. And just as Jesus has risen from the grave, so will He return for His people. And so, y'all, this is a message for us. This fortifies the church, I hope it ought to. But I want to close by reminding us that this is our message for the world as well. This is not just a message that we incubate ourselves with and feel good about our place among all the darkness out there, at least the lights in here. I want to remind us, y'all, that the church's responsibility, our calling, our identity, is to share this message outside the walls of this building. As we go, as we spend time with friends and neighbors and co-workers, to the nations, we share that anybody who has not yet come to know the Lord, we share the news redemption has been accomplished. We are in the last hour, which means the time is urgent. But redemption is not uncertain. The gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life comes by the free grace of God right now to anyone who will receive Him, who will turn the Son, Jesus Christ, and trust Him. And y'all, there is no darkness. I hope we see it. There is no darkness in here or out there that can be overwhelmed by the gracious light of our Savior. If we are in the last hour, that is good news. That's hopeful news. That's urgent news that we as the church of Jesus Christ might live accordingly. Would he make much of himself through his church as the days draw near? Let's pray. Father, I would ask this morning that you will help us where we have such a natural bent toward curiosity. We want to know days and times. We want to know specifics. Uh, That's not wrong, Lord, to desire that. But Lord, I pray that in no way would these things distract us from the more wonderful, greater, and necessary truth. That Jesus, You have all things in Your hands. You hold all things right now and uphold them by the Word of Your power. Lord, Your return is just as certain as Your resurrection. And so Lord there's nothing for us to fear. There's no reason for us to live in anxiety. Father, we have the ability right now where we sit, where we stand to deepen in our trust. To draw, Lord, from the Holy Spirit and the truth that we might be fortified against every scheme, every deception, every everything that would stand against our faith and our savior. And so, Father, I pray this morning for, for Your church, wherever people right now are calling upon Your name, Harvest Church and otherwise, Lord, that there would be a resounding call to faithfulness, to, uh, to strengthening, Lord, uh, how, we, how we should stand on the foundation, the rock that is Jesus. Lord, that we would not live in despair of the present world and its darkness, which is so easy to do. But Lord, that we would live as faithful people abiding in Jesus and abiding in His truth. And Lord, our faithfulness would not only fortify us internally, but would be a powerful message of Your grace to the world. So Father, I pray this morning for us that uh, this talk of antichrists would, would not, that our first thought would not be, um, or that our only thought would not be war in thinking of, of, um, of those at enmity with the church. But Lord, that our prevailing thought and our, and our hope and prayer would be light. Lord, that wherever darkness exists, Father, there is a light that belongs to You that is filled with grace and righteousness and love and salvation. And we have this privilege. Lord, as we are fortified internally, that we might be brighter and and more like Christ externally. That those who stand against Jesus right now will perhaps be converted to him and come to know his grace and and the, the mercy of eternal life through the influence of your people, your church. And so, Lord, let us have, I pray, not a defensive posture only, but one of offense, Lord, one of thinking outward, moving outward. Lord, because you alone, Jesus Christ, have the words of eternal life. Lord, let us, uh, let us be very generous with how we live and speak those words. Lord, everywhere we go, let that be true of us, your church, here in this last hour. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.